Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me podcast. We're still taking a little break, but we'll be back on August 27th with a new episode. Meanwhile, we have a special guest interview to share with you that I think you'll enjoy. As part of its voting rights project, Fine Law recently sat down to interview Professor David Schultz. He's a national expert on election law who teaches at Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota Law School. In the interview, he and Kelly Panikok, a senior writer here at Fine Law, discuss some of the basics of the Electoral College and what makes our system of electing a president unique. As you're probably aware, the Electoral College has faced unprecedented scrutiny and legal challenges in recent years. It's definitely something we'll be tackling in future episodes as the election nears. So whether you're brand new to the Electoral College or just want a refresher before the 2020 election, I think it's well worth a listen. We'll talk to you soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Kelly Panikok, and I'm a senior writer with FineLaw.com. Joining me today is Professor David Schultz, a national expert and author on election law. Presidential elections in the United States are not determined by popular vote. Instead, electors from each state vote in what is called the Electoral College process. Today, Professor Schultz is going to talk to us about the Electoral College, including why it was created, how it works, and whether or not it still makes sense for today's modern government. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Schultz. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So my first question for you is, what inspired your research into the Electoral College? There's a couple of different reasons into it. One of them is, is that my specialty is election law. And because presidential elections are so important, um, it naturally became of an interest to me to understand the process for how we go about selecting um, the president of the United States. Um, second, for reasons that we'll start to talk a little bit about here in the, um, the next few minutes, we've had two elections in the last 20 years where the popular vote and the electoral college vote have gone in different directions um, and therefore making the electoral college uh, a very important, let's say, newsworthy institution that most people don't think about. So a combination of interested in election law, interested in presidential elections, and in some of the anomalies that I think the Electoral College produces have all sort of led me to become very interested in it. And also, for reasons that we'll talk about today, um, the Electoral College produces this unusual thing called a swing state phenomena, where effectively we have a small number of states that effectively determine who becomes president of the United States. So there's a whole bunch of multiple reasons that we'll lay out today and people will be able to see as to why I get um, I'm passionate or interested in the Electoral College. Sounds very interesting. So let's talk a little bit. Can you explain how the Electoral College works for some of us that aren't as familiar? Sure. I need to take us back in, uh, in, in time and take us back to 1787, which is the creating of the American Constitution. And to understand that, we have to understand that that there were several, um, let us say, conflicts or dilemmas that our constitutional framers had to deal with. Um, one of them was the fact that we really are, the United States, the first, let's say, republic or popular government in the world. Across the world, all the other governments are what? They are 
monarchies, principalities, you know, maybe what we would call today, maybe um, uh, totalitarian governments. But this idea of the people selecting and voting was unusual. That's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind was how I'm going to say fear or distrust um, was an issue of the Constitutional Convention. And what I mean by fear or distrust is that there was the fear by the slave states that if the free states got too much power, they would get rid of slavery. The free states were fearful that if the slave states got too much power, we'd be all slave. The small populist states were fearful that if representation was set up in a certain way that favored big states, they would be unimportant. And the big states thought the same thing about the small states. So there were all these different conflicts that are going out there uh, that the that the that the Constitutional Convention had to deal with, on top of which the government that we were creating was emerging out of our first constitution called the Articles of Confederation, of which there was no independent president. And the, the concern was, how do we create this new office of the presidency, um, which didn't really exist before, without making it so powerful that it would be what? Like bringing back the King of England or too weak um, that it wouldn't be able to get anything done. So, so think of the picture here. We've got all these problems here, big versus small state, free versus slave, um, fear of, of kings versus too, too, too weak of a government and not completely sure how to create a new popular government. The electoral college becomes the solution, at least for the framers, regarding how to solve this problem. And what the Electoral College said, quite simply, is that we are going to let the states pick the president of the United States. And what do we mean by the states picking them? Is that each state would be given a number of electors equivalent to the size of their congressional delegation. State legislatures would pick those electors those electors would then choose the president of the United States. And the idea was that by having the electors do this, states would be represented. Therefore, small populous states would still have a voice as well as big states. Um, having the electors pick the president would mean that hopefully these electors would be independent enough to pick somebody who would be distinguished, who would be good, who would be a true leader. Um, and the idea was that the Electoral College would, would overcome regionalism, sectionalism, um, that it would protect majority rule and minority rights. There's a famous writer um, from the 1970s, Martin Diamond, who makes this argument and says that it's all about what? The Electoral College, about trying to balance majority rule and minority rights through this strange thing called the Electoral College. Now, I know all this sounds very complex, but at the end of the day, the framers thought in circa 1787 that the Electoral College was the way to address these different competing um, needs or compromises to pick the president of the United States. Wow. So has the Electoral College changed much um, since the framers created it? 
Yes, it has. And what's interesting is that when the Electoral College was first set up, the, and in fact, our entire Constitution, when it was first set up, presupposed that political parties did not exist. And what, ha and, and what I mean by that is that electors were given um, initially two votes. They could cast one vote and then they had to cast a second vote. And that second vote had to be for somebody who was not a member of their own state. And what happened is that whoever got the most elector, electoral votes, electors, uh, uh, became president. Whoever got the second most became vice president. Um, there wasn't this idea of like running on a ticket. And this made perfect sense in 1788 in the first presidential election. Because why? If I could write a campaign slogan, everybody wanted George. It was George Washington. <laughs> Everybody knew it was going to be George Washington to be president. So he gets the most votes. John Adams gets the second most votes. He becomes vice president. Same thing happens four years later. Everybody wants George again. He gets it. John Adams is president again. But by 1796, political parties are emerging. John Adams is of one party, the Federalists. Thomas Jefferson is of a rival political party, what's called the Democratic Republicans, which is now basically the Democratic Party. An election happens, and guess what? John Adams gets the most votes. He's president. His political party rival, Thomas Jefferson, becomes vice president. So starting in 1796, parties are emerging. And then what really brings about the big change is in 1800. Thomas Jefferson is running as a ticket with his vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr. The electors still have two votes. They cast their votes. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr are tied. It goes through, goes through multiple votes in the House of Representatives because if nobody, according to the Constitution, if nobody gets a majority of the electoral votes, the House of Representatives picks the president. We were that close to Aaron Burr being the third president of the United States. Instead, after Jefferson was picked, we changed the Constitution, the 12th Amendment, which now makes the president and the vice president run as a ticket. So more or less, that's been the basic structure constitutionally uh, with the Electoral College. Now, there's a couple of other important changes to note here, too. One of them is the fact that, still remember this, we have no right to vote for president of the United States. Uh, we were reminded of that as late as, to, as, as most recently as the year 2000 um, in, the, in the big fight between George Bush and Al Gore over the electoral votes in Florida. Um, and what the Supreme Court pointed out is that the authority to pick the electors still stays with state legislatures. But really, since the 1820s, state legislatures have given the public the right to use votes within their states to select the electors. So think about how our election goes now. If we're going to update it to the present, what our presidential election really is, is I call it the race to 270. And what I mean by the race to 270 
there are a total of 538 electoral votes. In order to win the presidency, a ticket has to win 270, which is a majority of those electoral votes. Those 538 electoral votes or electors are distributed across the United States roughly on the basis of population, which means bigger states like California, by bigger I mean more populous, get more electoral votes, but every state gets at least three electoral votes. And so our presidential election is really 50 separate state elections plus District of Columbia competing to amass electoral votes where the state legislatures are saying that the people get to pick the electors who pick the president. And one more wrinkle, in 48 out of 50 states, whoever wins the most popular vote in a state wins all the electors in that state. The only two states that it's not that way are Nebraska and Maine. By now, you or the audience's head is probably swimming because what are we talking about here? Um, um, uh, majority vote within states, picking electors on an all or nothing basis, where we have a race to get to 270 electoral votes, um, where we don't per, per se have a right to vote for president, and where it doesn't on one level matter who wins the popular vote because it's what? The race to 270. This sounds really confusing, and it is. I know when I talk to my students, when I go out and, and talk to the public, and I, I do lots of talks during election year and explain the Electoral College, everybody's like, wow, this is complex. And it is. It's a very complex system, um, the way it's evolved over time. I've given lots of talks over the last few years in every presidential election cycle. Um, people invite me to go explain and talk about the Electoral College. And it is very confusing. This idea of telling people that we supposedly live in a democracy, but we don't have the direct right to vote for president. It's these people called electors to pick them, that how they're picked is by legislatures state legislatures, but the state legislatures let us pick the electors and that it's done in an all or nothing fashion within states. And that at the end of the day, it's the race to get to 270 electoral votes and that the popular vote technically doesn't matter. This is all really confusing. And it is because we do live in a very complex system regarding how we pick the president of the United States. And it's a very unique process um, compared to any other country in the world, because all the other countries in the world that we would classify as a democracy, the people have the right to vote for their president or to pick the party that would pick their prime minister, you know, who'd be the head of their government. So we're in kind of an unusual cir circumstance here, and partly because of the fact that what? Our Constitution is the oldest written Constitution in the world, and we more or less have a process for picking the president that goes back 230 years. So we, we have a, an old process that has been sort of, let's say, jerry-rigged or, or 
tried to be fixed a couple of times, um, but but it's an unusual one. And it's, again, very confusing for most people to understand it. I think I remember reading somewhere that um, the Electoral College was partially created so that people that lived far away from um, cities and state capitals um, didn't have to vote themselves, that they had representatives to vote for them. Is that true? There's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, I mean, again, take us back to 1787. You know, we were probably, I'm going to guess at that point, about 90% rural. Most people lived on farms. I'm going to make a guess here, and I've seen some statistics that say that probably maybe a third of the population that was literate, you know, that could that could read and write. Uh, and I, I mention that because the difficulty of, of traveling to vote, um, the ability to of our people to be, let's say, well-informed perhaps about, about the presidency or to understand, let's say, the government, you know, might have been um, um, weaker than it is now because we didn't have all the same information technologies back then. And then there are some people who say that the framers just didn't completely trust the average person back then to be able to cast votes. And so there's a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but a lot of times when I talk about American politics and I talk about our Constitution, um, I sometimes write a word on the board, and that word is fear, F-E-A-R. And I say that because, as I mentioned earlier, there were lots of fears that went into the drafting of the Constitution, fear that one side would get too powerful, fear that the government wouldn't be strong enough. Um, let me tell you a funny story also about where fear comes in with the Electoral College also. When we talk about how the election actually occurs, you know, when we go to vote on November 3rd this year, that's when the popular vote occurs, where we go to vote. But that's not in many ways the real election. The real election takes place several weeks later in November. November, I believe it is 14th, um, where the electors will meet to actually cast their ballot. And the Constitution says that the electors shall meet in their own states, in their own capitals. The reason why I mention this is when I tell people about the Electoral College, they have this image of 538 people converging on Washington to vote. I said, no, our framers were so worried that if all the electors got together in some place, that some kind of conspiracy or something nefarious would happen um, that they said, no, they're going to stay back in their own states. And so, so I think fear is maybe a good description. Um, again, Martin Diamond's description, maybe that fear is a fear that somehow uh, minorities, um, unpopular views, small states would not be represented. And again, there was the hope, the belief that the Electoral College would protect uh, those minorities, whether they were the farmers, the rural people, the people in small states. And, and so I just mention that because we oftentimes look at the Electoral College from the only perspective that we can. What? Being 2020, year 2020, we look back. But we have to look at it from the perspective of when the framers drafted it and they had perhaps very different reasons for why they were doing something, even if it evolved in ways that went different from what they thought or envisioned. 
So obviously the electors have a very important job. How do they um, get to be an elector and who can be an elector? Sure. Okay. Now, the original idea was that the elector would be somebody picked by the state legislature. Alexander Hamilton, um, writing in one of the Federalist Papers, you know, Alexander Hamilton's one of the constitutional framers. Federalist Papers is a collection of papers written by him, James Madison, and John Jay discussing the Constitution. And Alexander Hamilton's hope that these electors would almost be like wise sages, that they would be able to think um, in terms of what's the best interests of the country. So this image was that the legislatures would nonpartisanly appoint them. These individuals would then deliberate and say, the best person for president is, is George Washington or, or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln or whatever it may be. Okay. That was the idea. But with the evolution and involvement or creation of political parties, what really happens now is electors are generally friends of, of the presidential candidates. So what happens, let's, let's say for this coming November, uh, that it's Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to have a slate of electors that he wants in each of the 50 states plus District of Columbia. Donald Trump is going to have his slate of electors in all 50 states plus District of Columbia. And these are generally people who are very loyal, um, who are generally pledged to vote for for the um, um, for the winning candidate. And whichever candidate then wins, as I mentioned before, wins the most popular vote in that state, gets to seat his electors. Now, the reason why this is important is that if the original idea behind the electors was that these were wise sages, um, um, very deliberative people, it's less clear that that's what their role is today. Um, is that I don't want to quite go as far as saying they are, are partisans. But that's a little bit closer to where they are. But this raises an interesting question that over time, we've had what's been known as faithless electors. That is, even though individuals said they were pledged to vote a particular way, when it got to the casting of the electoral vote, the the elector didn't vote the way they thought they were going to. And over time, none, none of these faithless electors have actually affected the outcome of, a, of, of an election. But if you were to get a very close election, like in 2020, many people are anticipating that this could be a very, very close election. Let us say one or two electors and maybe three electors decide to say, I don't like Trump or I don't like Biden. I'm going to vote for whoever, whoever it may be. That could be critical. Actually, there's a really interesting case that the Supreme Court just decided um, recently regarding faithless electors and whether states can require them to vote according to way they were initially pledged or told to do so by their voters. So let's talk about that case. The Supreme Court held that states can punish faithless electors. Can you tell us a little about what that means and why it's important? 
Okay, sure. What many states have done is to pass laws requiring electors to vote according to the way that the popular vote went in that particular state. And what the Supreme Court recently decided was that a state may punish an elector who refuses to vote the way the popular vote um, um, requires that person to vote. And, and that's a pretty important decision because it talks all about what? The way we pick presidents of the United States. So would you say the ruling is an all-out ban on electors voting against their pledge, or is it just that states can decide to punish them if the state wants to? It's not an all-out ban on electors voting their conscience or the way they want. Instead, what it says is that if a state does want to pass, again, what's called a faithless elector law, um, they may do so. And if they wish to punish them by fining them, they may do so. Now, so far, not all the states in the country have laws like this, but it is possible that a decision like this may encourage more states to pass similar laws, especially when our elections have become so polarized and so divided, where states may be fearful that if they don't compel electors to vote the way they're supposed to, it could affect the outcome of an election um, or it could lead to electors doing who knows what. OK, so at this point in time, what happens if a state doesn't have um, a law on their books punishing faithless electors? What would happen at this point, it would leave electors free to do whatever they really want, um, and which is really kind of unusual here. Because again, for most of us, we're thinking that when we cast our vote and the votes are totaled up in our states, whether it's Minnesota, New York, or California, or Texas, or Louisiana, wherever it may be, voters are thinking, well, the electors have to follow um, um, how the popular vote went in that state. They have to go the way that we told them to. But without those faithless elector laws, a faithless elector could say, well, gosh, I really don't like um, this particular candidate, or I don't think this person um, is the best choice to be president of the United States. And it would free that person to vote for somebody else. Over time, over American history, we've had um, several faithless electors, never enough to actually affect the outcome of an election. It's usually maybe maybe one, maybe two electors occasionally um, in an election, um, but even not every election. Uh, so what will really wind up happening here is that there may be in 2020, could be going in the future, some electors who might just say they don't like who, was, who won the state and they're going to vote a different way. Okay. And why do some people believe that electors should have discretion to vote against their pledge? I think there's sort of two reasons. One of them goes back to really the, the structure of the Constitution and the Electoral College. Remember, it's ultimately the states that pick the president of the United States through the Electoral College. Um, and under originally envisioned by our constitutional framers, the idea was that the electors would somehow be these wise sages who would be able to make really good choices for who would be president of the United States. And therefore, that's one argument. 
The second one is sometimes sort of approaching almost kind of a um, a chamber of horrors type of argument. The argument being that, well, what if the people take leave of their senses um, and they were to vote for, I don't know, um, Fido the dog or something like that, or they were to pick somebody who's totally unqualified? Or what if, for example, somebody um, wins the popular vote in a state, but then that person goes on to die? or commits a major crime or something. So giving giving the elector some discretion to be able to, to make their own choices, I think is partly why some of the defenders um, want to be able to give the electors wide open discretion. Okay, that makes sense. What do you think the framers would say about the recent Supreme Court decision? This is a really tough question here because there's not a lot written in terms of the Constitutional Convention about the Electoral College. Um, the There was lots of debate about how to select the president, and the whole idea for creating the Electoral College occurs literally at the 11th, or I say, should say figuratively, occurs at the 11th hour of the convention. Not a lot of debate, not a lot of text on it. One could argue and say, on the one hand, that that the states were given very broad authority to determine who the electors are and to pick them, which is what the majority opinion um, in the Supreme Court recent cases said. Or you could find evidence within the the debates of the Constitutional Convention that the electors were supposed to be given wide discretion. So like on so many other things, when we get to the Constitution and trying to figure out perhaps what the intent of the framers were, it's not completely clear. Okay, interesting. So what does the decision mean for the 2020 election and beyond? Well, what it means for the 2020 election um, is that we may have it be less likely that we'll be surprised by an elector changing his or, his or her vote for somebody else. And under some scenarios, some predictions for this election, some people are thinking that this could be one of the closest elections in American history. Some think that even though the popular vote um, seems to be favoring one candidate as opposed to another right now, that in those critical electoral votes, it's very close. Some were fearful that what? The switch of one or two electors could mean the difference between one person winning versus losing the presidency. This decision makes it less likely that the flip of one or two electors um, is going to happen or that it'll change the outcome of the election. Okay. Do you expect to see more states enacting laws against faithless electors before the election? I, I think we will eventually see more states do this. Um, I think so many states right now are in the grip of worrying about other election issues right now because of the coronavirus, um, worried about what, getting ballots out, worried about how to get election judges, worried about just running an election. Um, I'm not sure this will be at the top of their list of things that they're going to be you know, prioritizing. But I would definitely think that going forward after this decision, it empowers states to want to do this. Well, that'll be very interesting to see how that all works out. So going back to the Electoral College more broadly, what impact does the Electoral College have on an election compared to an election decided by popular vote? You've already talked about this a little bit, but can you expand on that a little more? 
Sure. So let's think about it. Let's say we just had a straight popular vote in the United States. A straight popular vote um, would mean whoever gets the most popular votes, the most votes on Election Day would become president of the United States. And the argument for some is that if that's how we were to hold an election, would it create an incentive for presidential candidates to only visit very large populous states, for example, like a California or a Texas, a Florida, New York, to name, for example, the four most populous states in the country. Would they ignore, let us say, a North Dakota, a South Dakota? Um, would they say, well, there's not that many votes really in a Rhode Island, and I'm not going to really worry about that. So on one level, um, a popular vote would just simply add up all the votes. Um, whoever gets the most votes um, would win. And that would potentially um, mean that some states get ignored, possibly, possibly get ignored in the election. Now, with the Electoral College in place, a couple things um, to think about here. One is, as we've seen now for five times in American history, the winner of the popular vote doesn't necessarily win the Electoral College because of the way electoral votes are distributed across the country. Um, every state gets a minimum of three electors, no matter what. Um, that's the bottom. Can't go any lower than that. Um, there is a little bit of a distortion effect. And what you can wind up having um, is where a candidate can win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College. We saw that in 2016, where Secretary Clinton received about two and a half to three million more popular votes than Donald Trump, but lost in the Electoral College. In the year 2000, Al Gore received about two thousand, no, about about a half a million more um, popular votes than did George Bush, but lost the presidency because of the Electoral College. So the difference is is that the Electoral College. It's important for the distribution, where those votes are that one is getting them from. And what this creates is an unusual circumstance that we also know in the United States that partisanship has become incredibly rigid. We know that we're becoming very, very partisan. And there are some states in the country that are so overwhelmingly democratic, for example, New York or California, that on election day, um, it's pretty easy to predict that a Democrat's going to win. In fact, it's easy to predict months in advance of the election. On the other hand, there are states, let us say, such as Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, that are so overwhelmingly Republican that we know how they're going to vote. And this is where it gets to my research now is that back in 2015, I co-authored a book called Presidential Swing States. And what we argued is that because of the Electoral College, where again in 48 out of 50 states, uh, electors are awarded in a winner-take-all situation. And because of the way the, the Democrats and Republicans clump themselves in some states as opposed to another, we argued back then that the presidential election was probably over in 40 states, and there were only about 10 states that were really in play. And the candidates in 2016 acted that way, too. They only campaigned in a few number of states, places like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, places like that. Um, and 
what the electoral college has created with that partisanship um, is we have really only a few states that wind up really mattering at this point. Going into 2020 election, um, again, looking at the distorting effect of the electoral college, um, I'm arguing that there's probably only about seven states maybe eight states at most, seven states that are truly competitive. And for people who are wondering, I can list them for you. Most of the campaign in 2020 is going to center around Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, perhaps Minnesota, and Arizona. Those are the seven states that, that are in play. Right now, uh, My, you know, looking at the Electoral College, Donald Trump and Joe Biden each have somewhere around uh, around 205, 210 electoral votes pretty comfortably on their side. Um, they're going to fight for the remaining 100 electoral votes, which are going to determine who gets over the top. So this is how the Electoral College has affected strategy over time, creating certain states that are more important. Um, for some people, the argument is that, well, if I'm a Democrat in Texas, a Republican in New York, why should I vote? Because my vote might not mean anything. No, you still should vote. Um, not, uh, you still should vote because if nobody voted, then of course things would change. But there's also, of course, non-presidential elections to worry about. But certainly the presidential uh, election system with the Electoral College and our partisanship has really created this, again, if I can use the word, distorting effect in terms of how campaigns are undertaken. Hmm. Wow, interesting. Now I have a, an opinion question for you. So in your opinion, should we get rid of the electoral college process? Does it still make sense today? Does it serve its purpose? If we were to look at the original purposes of the electoral college, it largely hasn't worked over time. Um, what I mean by that, does it protect small states? Not necessarily. Does it overcome regionalism? No. Does it overcome sectionalism? No. Uh, so a lot of those original premises um, haven't worked out over time. It's also produced a situation where for many people, the idea that somebody can be elected president of the United States, but not win the popular vote, doesn't strike most of us of, of what it means to be democratic now. So if I were, and I don't have it with me, I was gonna say, if I could wave my magic wand, I don't have one. So if I wave <laughs> my magic pen here, um, I would say, yes, we should get rid of the electoral college. However, the question is, what do we do when we get rid of it? Because this becomes interesting. Now, one of the benefits of the electoral college is the fact that right now, with it being 50 separate state elections plus a separate election in District of Columbia, if there's, let us say, shenanigans or some problem in one state, we only have to recount the vote in one state. If it's now a national popular vote, would we be potentially in a close election recounting in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia? So that's one issue to think about here. The second issue is would going to straight popular vote mean that what? People would still ignore the small states. They would still say, I'm not going to go to Idaho. I'm not going to go to South Dakota. I'm not going to go to Wyoming, possibly. So we might get a different distortion. Okay. The third issue is 
as much as I think we probably need to change the Electoral College and move away from it, remember, to do that, we need a constitutional amendment. To do that, we would have to get two-thirds of both the House and the Senate plus three-quarters of the states to adopt of that amendment. That's probably impossible to occur um, at this stage. So what I actually recommend instead is, remember I mentioned to you that state legislatures still get to decide how to pick the electors. They lit the public vote. And in 48 out of 50 states, states allocate electors based upon winner take all. Maybe this is not the best solution. Maybe it's the second best solution is to say, why don't we try to get more states to allocate their electors on a proportional basis? Which means, for example, let's say in um, in California, let's say a Democrat wins 60 percent of the popular vote and a Republican wins 40 percent. Maybe we should allocate the electoral votes 60-40. Or in a state like, let us say, um, Texas, where Republicans have dominated for years, um, let's say Republican gets 55%, Democrats 45%, allocate it that way. It's maybe not the optimum solution, but it gets us closer, closer to that idea of, of getting it being more proportional. Um, still going to be some problems with distortion, but I think from a constitutional perspective, given the fact that it's unlikely to get an amendment to change, even though 60% of the American public wants to get rid of the Electoral College, it's going to be very hard to get rid of a constitutional system that's been around for, what, 230 years. So I would say two cheers for getting rid of the Electoral College, one cheer for keeping it. Okay. Do you foresee a solution like the one you just suggested? Do you foresee that happening anytime soon? Not necessarily, although we are seeing increasingly states experiment. For example, the state of Maine is thinking of, is actually going to use in 2020 ranked choice voting as a way of picking the president of the United States. Uh, I mentioned to you, we've got two states, um, Maine and Nebraska, that already do it proportionally. There are other calls out there, for example, what's called the national popular vote, where it's the call to say that a state should allocate its electoral votes based upon how the national popular vote goes. So there are lots of proposals out there um, for trying to reform it, just that none of them seem to be getting the consensus yet. What I think has to happen, this is unfortunate to say, is that we probably need to have another election occur where where something goes wrong that people perceive it's going wrong. And what I mean by that is we know Democrats right now are upset with the Electoral College because what? They claim that in 2020 or rather in 2016 and in the year 2000, um, a Democrat should have been president but lost in the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps if now, um, let us say, something were to reverse to happen. Let's say, for example, Donald Trump were to get the most popular vote in 2020, but lose electoral college to Biden. It might create more of a bipartisan consensus to say to do something. But right now, in the same way that we are so divided politically on so many other issues, I think there's this partisan divide over the electoral college also. 
Okay. Wow. So interesting. Thank you so much, Professor Schultz, for your insights and all of your knowledge on this. This has been really, really informative. Um, for more information on voting law, visit finelaw.com slash voting. And if you do want to contact Professor Schultz, he's available by email at dschultz at hamlin.edu. Thank you.